Some of you came back. It's good to have you back. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here, and those of you who were last week were here last week. Uh, you know we talked all about human sex and sexuality, and today is part two of that talk. So those of you who returned, thank you. Those of you who weren't here last week, maybe you're checking out Park Community Church and you have no idea what you're stepping into. It is a PG-13 at best rated sermon, so just be aware of that. And we are working through scripture. At Park Community Church, we like to take books of the Bible primarily and just kind of work through them section by section. And so I didn't set out to talk about human sex and sexuality. It's in the letter of scripture that we are preaching through in chapter seven. And so we're going to be looking at that today. But before we do, I want to do like I did last week and give you a few like ground rules, a little bit of framework for how I'm thinking about these topics. The first one is to engage these topics in humility. We don't want to run from the conversation of sex and sexuality, but we do want to engage it in with humility. Justin Gibney of the And campaign has this great paradigm. He talks about conviction and compassion as Christians. We, we need to have biblical convictions, but we need to engage those convictions with compassion. And so on the topic of sex and sexuality, we want, we want to engage it with conviction and compassion. We want to engage it with humility. We want to weep with those who weep. In, we've been averaging around 200 or a little more the last few months at Park Community Church, and, and that means there's 200 different wounds and experiences related to human sex and sexuality right? 200 different experiences and wounds. And we want to weep with those who weep. There's a lot of people who have been hurt, confused, disappointed in the topic related to sex and sexuality. And the Bible calls us as Christians to weep with those who weep. And so I want you to know that as a pastor, I, I care about counsel. I care about, I, I care about people. And so I want to proclaim God's truth. But when there's 200 different wounds... In a counseling setting, you would listen and you would speak in a different way to each person who's been individually hurt and wounded, right? And so I want you to know that my heart posture is to weep with those who weep. It's, it's to see the gospel heal our hurts. It's to see Jesus forgive our sin. And, and some of what I say may not land with you and, and other stuff that I say may land with you. And just keep in mind that there's 200 different wounds represented, and we need to weep with all of us. Uh, one posture is to listen before speaking. We have a resource page on our website with a bunch of different voices engaging the topic of human sex and sexuality. I encourage you to go and listen to some of those. Go onto our website under resources. A ton of resources there that I've been listening to over the last couple of years. Really helpful stuff. Um, I, I realize the irony that I'm going to be speaking for about 40 minutes, um, but I've been spending hours each week listening because I really do, as the Bible tells us to as Christians, listen before speaking. I, I want us to be repenting of personal and corporate sexual idolatry while embracing our gospel identity. The reality is each one of us has sins related to human sex and sexuality, and some of us have been sinned against related to human sex and sexuality, and where we are sinning, I want us to be repenting. And then also corporately, the church, the church has done a lot of harm in misapplying God's truth related to sex and sexuality. And so we need to repent of that. And then as we do, we want to embrace our gospel identity, right? Sexuality can become an idolatry. As we look at 1 Corinthians, we're talking about idolatry. And sexuality and human sex is a form of idolatry when we put it above God. 
And in all of our idolatry, we're called to fight our idolatry by embracing our gospel identity. That means repenting of our sin, but bringing it into the light and embracing what God says about us in Jesus Christ. Even this morning, as we were singing, one of the lines that just hit me, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's your identity. We just sang that this morning. Not, and we don't gather just to sing out of tradition. We gather to sing to remind us what is true. If you're in Jesus, your sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it, everything you've said, everything you've done, every hurt that's been done to you, it's nailed to the cross with Jesus, the whole of it. And you have to bear that no more. You no longer have to bear the weight of your sin and shame. And so we fight our idolatry with our identity. We want to submit to the biblical sexual ethic. The the Bible is my authority when it comes to sex and sexuality. And so we're submitting ourselves to what the Bible has to say. We're trying to understand what the Bible says about these topics and submit ourselves to that. If you're a non-believer here, uh, you may disagree with a lot of what we say. And that's okay. You're allowed to ask questions. You're allowed to be around and to listen. You just need to know that our premise is we're trying to understand what, what this book has to say about sex and sexuality and apply it to our lives and to our church. And this ethic is for us. It's not for the non-believing world. And so even as we talk about marriage, we're talking about a biblical ethic for marriage that applies to Christians, not to the world around us. And so I'm not a politician, so I don't know how to engage this topic in, in like the civic square. There's resources on our website to talk about that. But what I want you to know is that as we talk about these things, this is an ethic for the people of God, not for the community that we live in, Right? And so we as Christians and as a church, we're submitting ourselves to a biblical sexual ethic. This doesn't necessarily mean that we have to require the non-believing world to abide by our sexual ethic. And there's a time and a place to talk about that. But remember in 1 Corinthians, before we get into chapter 7, in chapter 5, Paul has already told the church not to judge outsiders. He said, this this rule of life that scripture gives is for those who say, I'm a follower of Jesus. What do we have to do with judging the outsiders? And so just keep that in mind that this is our ethic, not the ethic that we need to impose upon the world. And then as we transition into chapter 7 this morning, really here's the point. It's to enjoy the benefits of your relational status. Sex in marriage or abstinence in singleness. This chapter is dealing with sex in marriage and abstinence and singleness. And the Apostle Paul is actually going to tell the church to enjoy whatever station of life they are in. And so if, if you are married, you're supposed to be enjoying sex in marriage. So there's complications with that. We're going to talk about that as we go this morning. If you're single, you're supposed to be enjoying abstinence or no sex in your singleness. Complications with that. We'll talk about it as we go, but that's the case. That's what Paul is teaching. And then this, this last point here is just to learn for the sake of others. If you're single this morning, you're, you may be tempted to check out because really the topic this morning is about marriage and sex in marriage. And so you may think this doesn't really apply to me. I, I, I think it's good for you to learn for the sake of your married friends so you can better understand their struggles, their temptations, their joys, what they're walking through. And then next week, we're going to talk about singleness. Specifically, Paul addresses singleness as well. And so if you're married, you'll be tempted to check out because it doesn't apply to you. But you need to listen so that you can better understand the the joys, the temptations, the struggles, the frustrations of your single friends. 
and the singles who make up the church. And so we learn for the sake of others. That's a good discipline for any Christian. With all of that, half of the sermon is disclaimers and prefacing this whole talk. Let's look at our text for today. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to ask that you stand as I read this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, on page 955 in the Pew Bible. The Apostle Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Whew, that's a lot. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us to understand this? This instruction given to the messy church 2,000 years ago, which still has a relevance for us today. Lord, there's cultural differences here, so help us to be able to weed through that. And in the midst of the cultural differences, there is a timeless truth given from you for the good of your people and the flourishing of society in the world. And so may we find that, Lord. May that be clear to us. Lord, may we love you and love others in this area of sex and sexuality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Let me summarize this passage for us, just kind of break it down. In, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is a, it's a pretty, confu- it's not really confusing, its order is kind of confusing, and it kind of frustrates me that this letter from 2,000 years ago is ordered in the way that it's ordered. But that's okay, right? Written in a different language on a different continent, Paul goes from talking about sex in marriage 
He talks about sexual asceticism, and then he talks about sexual satisfaction, and then he talks about the superiority of singleness, and then the purpose and the permanence of marriage. And then what he's going to do in, in verse 17 through 24, he's going to talk about embracing your calling, whatever relational status you're in, whatever stage of life you're in, he talks about embracing that. And then in verses 25 through 40, the end of the chapter, he's going to go back to singleness and talk more about that. And so organizing, preaching through this letter is not the easiest thing that I've done. Here's what I want to do to help us with it this morning is to just look at kind of these four parts as we walk through the first 17 verses of this chapter. He starts by talking about sexual asceticism. And for those of you who like history, you like Greek-like mythology, and you like big words, asceticism, you know what that means. For those of you who don't necessarily like that, asceticism just means abstinence. It means to withhold. It means a strict, um, like a strict discipline. You know, like if you've been abstinent, if you've abstained from alcohol, or you've abstained from spending money, or you've abstained from gluten and sugar for Lent, right? This is what it means to abstain. Asceticism means abstinence. And in this culture, in the first century in Corinth, there were kind of these two ditches that the church was influenced by. There was this Greek thought of asceticism, which is don't touch, don't handle, don't taste. Don't, don't participate in anything that would gratify the desires of the flesh. There were non-believing Greeks who lived this way, very disciplined. There are people who just, they're, they're disciplined and they don't want to handle anything that could master them. And this thought was creeping into the church. And so there were Christians who had grown up in, in asceticism culture, in abstinence culture, and then they brought that into the church and they thought, we're, we're not allowed to do anything that gives the body pleasure. You may know some people like this here now today that think anything that gives the body pleasure is bad or it must be unholy and so stay away from it. And so there was this, this sect within the church And then on the other ditch, there was hedonism. Hedonism was this other worldview. It just means, for those of you who like history and and Greek history, you understand what hedonism is. Again, for those of you who don't, hedonism just means indulgence. It means whatever brings the body pleasure, whatever brings joy to the flesh, go all in on it. If that's alcohol, drink as much as you want. If that's drugs, take as much as you want. If that's sex, have as much as you want. That is hedonism. And that was also influencing this culture and the church. And so in this church, in the first century in Corinth, you had these two ditches. You had people who were falling on the asceticism side saying, we can't have any fun. We can't enjoy the pleasures of life. It's all self-discipline. It's all self-torture. It's all self-denial. That's one ditch. And then you had another ditch of people saying, we can do whatever we want. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And related to sexuality, to sex and sexuality, right? In the context of chapters 5, 6, and 7, Paul is dealing with the idol of sex. And so in this church, and and we talked about this last week, so if you missed last week, I'd highly encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon because that kind of sets up the premise for holy sexuality, which Paul is calling the church to. He's teaching and instructing the church that there's a proper way to engage in sex. And that is asceticism if you're single. Or abstinence if you're single. And it's hedonism if you're married. 
that sexual asceticism or sexual abstinence is only for the single. Look at verse 1. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Remember, I've said this before in our series, but this is likely the second letter in exchange between Paul and the church in Corinth. They had written him a letter asking him questions. He had written them an earlier letter, which has been lost. We don't have record of it. But then they had written him a letter asking him some specific questions related to sex and sexuality, related to food sacrifice to idols, related to the giving of money, related to communion. So that's some of what's coming up in the future of this letter. But here he addresses the first one, this idea of sex within marriage. He says, concerning the matters about what you wrote, it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. In this church... In first century Corinth, there was a section of the church which believed that sexual pleasure, sexual expression is bad because it gratifies the desires of the flesh. And so therefore, we should abstain from sex altogether. Even within marriage, we should abstain from sex. And even some people who were married were tempted to get divorced because they thought, well, a life of singleness and a life of abstinence and a life of no physical pleasure and enjoyment is better. And Paul addresses that. He says, concerning this matter, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And that's true for an unmarried person. And we talked about this last week. It's a pretty restrictive sexual ethic. The Bible does have a restrictive sexual ethic. We just have to acknowledge that. If if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you probably know this. If If you're curious about Christianity, you need to know the Bible actually teaches that marriage is for one man and one woman, and sex is for within marriage. It's not culturally popular. That's what the Bible teaches. And and again, that ethic is for the church, not for the world, right? What do we have to do with judging the outsiders? This is an ethic that Jesus-following people are supposed to strive after. And Paul says, so, so sexual asceticism or sexual abstinence is actually called for for the single. We're going to talk more about singleness next week, and we'll dive deeper on that. And then what he moves into is that then sexual satisfaction is for marriage. Look at verse 2. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, right, there's temptation for most people in marriage and outside of marriage, right? There are some people who just have a lower sexual drive and there's less temptation. But most married people have temptation towards people who aren't their spouse and singles have perpetual temptation because they don't have an outlet for sex. And Paul is saying that because of sexual immorality and the temptation to sin, in chapter 6, people are going to temples and, and, and sleeping with prostitutes as a form of worship. In the city of Corinth, there was highly available sex for purchase. And people are doing this. And he's saying, because of that temptation, you ought to get married. And so, within sexual satisfaction, one of the, one of the things that we need to, to realize is that The place for sexual satisfaction, the place for sexual enjoyment is within marriage between one man and one one woman. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach you to abstain from sex in marriage or it does not teach that sex is bad. It teaches that sex is good. That sex is a great gift of God, but it's in marriage. And one of the purposes of marriage 
is to have an outlet for sexual temptation. Some of you need to be reminded that that's not the only purpose of marriage, right? But it is a purpose of marriage. One of the reasons that people get married is to enjoy sex together. You didn't, what a weird morning, huh? Welcome to Park Community Church. I'm on Facebook Live right now. You guys are just sitting in the pews. You're like, this is uncomfortable for me to listen to. Yeah, it's uncomfortable for me to say. This is the reality, though. This is what the Bible's teaching. And, and, and people need this reminder. We need this reminder that one of the reasons for marriage is to enjoy sex with your spouse. And so the purpose for sexual satisfaction is pleasure. I wanna, as we think about sexual satisfaction, just kind of three things here. The place for sexual satisfaction, I already said it's marriage. The purpose for sexual satisfaction is pleasure. Generally speaking, it feels really good, and there's a ton of scientific research for all of the health benefits of sex and orgasms. Yes, it's true. Isn't that amazing? God cares about the pleasure and the enjoyment of his people. Now, let me give a caveat. It doesn't always feel good. There's complications with this. There's brokenness with sex. And so we need to apply these things with grace. In marriage, you need to understand one another. When we think about sexual satisfaction, let's think about the place, the purpose, and the practice, okay? So the place is marriage between a man and a woman. The purpose is pleasure. It has, it has physical benefits, for those who do it, it bonds you with your partner. The Bible teaches that there is a special union that happens in sexual intercourse. That sexual intimacy bonds you to another person. It's the wedding of physical, emotional, and spiritual bonds between two people. Now, there's a ton of questions with that, like, what if I've had sex with multiple people? What does that mean? And, and there's a lot of hurt related to that. And so, please, again, hear grace and forgiveness and new identity in Jesus. But, but we need to come back to the, the, the foundation. What is the purpose of marriage and sex within marriage? Well, the place is man and woman. The purpose is for pleasure, for, for physical um, release for bonding you to another person. Look at chapter 6, just up a little bit. Verse 16. Paul says, Or do you not know that he is, who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her body? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. This is one of the Bible's teachings about Sexual intimacy, that it bonds people together in this unique, mysterious, spiritual, emotional, and physical way. And it's this incredible gift and bond that God intends for two people to enjoy forever together in marriage. Again, tons of caveats because a lot of people have had this taken away from them or they've given it away. But there's always grace and forgiveness. There's new identity and cleansing in Jesus. We'll come back to that one of the realities that we just need to pause on here with this, this idea of sex, sexual satisfaction within marriage is that especially those who grew up in the church, how many of you grew up hearing about purity culture or have thought about purity culture recently in the last few? Put your hands up nice and high. There's more of you. Okay, there we go. Like purity pledges, purity rings. 
there was some good intention. Like people my age, around my age, grew up in this culture where a lot of churches promoted this thing called purity culture. And, and, and it started with this good intent to say that sex is for marriage, to teach a biblical sexual ethic. But within it, there was a lot of hurt and harm. And so the, the teaching of the Bible here is that sex is for marriage and it's for your good. But some of the unintended consequences of the church's teaching is that we leaned into thinking that like primarily it was pitched as guys need sex, women should just endure it. Women, you need to make sure that you keep yourself um, modest. Modest is hottest, right? Because guys can't handle it. And that's just an improper teaching, right? Men are called to be men who honor the Lord and look at women as sisters in Christ. And they don't use their bodies for their own sexual pleasure outside of marriage. And in marriage, yes, they do, but it's consensual and it's respectful. And in fact, in marriage, the wife can also use the husband's body for her pleasure, which is mind-blowing in this culture. Let's get back to Scripture so you don't think I'm just making stuff up. Look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control. Paul is actually teaching that it's the husband's job to honor and pleasure his wife sexually in marriage. Not to be a taker, but a giver. And he teaches the same to the wife. And I can't tell you how many counseling sessions I've been in and how many conversations I've been a part of where, where men will take this passage out of context and say, her body is mine to use as I please. And, and to not apply it here that no, no, her, your body is also hers. And if she's saying no, if she's saying stop, if she's saying not now, there's this mutual consent and agreement towards how married people engage in sex. It, and in the purity culture, and often in this culture in the first century, sex was generally viewed like something that men need, right? I already mentioned this, and women put up with. But here what Paul is actually teaching is that women have a sex drive too, and men should be willing to please their spouses, not just take from their spouses. This is mind-blowing in the first century where, where men used women as a commodity. And Paul is saying here that the biblical vision of marriage and a healthy marriage is when husband and wife are serving each other, when they're learning each other's bodies, when they're finding what pleases each other, and working this out over time. And so the practice of sexual satisfaction, you need to learn what works for you in your marriage. You need to get to know your spouse. Get to know how their body works. Figure out how to serve them. And then those who have experienced abuse, maybe they have pain or physical limitations, honor one another, care for one another. The book of Philippians tells us to consider others' needs more significant than our own. And I can't tell you how often marriages are hurt because when it comes to sex and sexuality, 
People tend to be takers. Like sometimes people withhold sex as punishment or frustration. Or sometimes people demand sex. And Paul here is saying that, that this act is to bond a husband and wife together. And we're not supposed to deprive one another, but we're supposed to please one another for the glory of God. Crazy. Have you even thought about that? Like, your sexual intimacy with your spouse is for the glory of God, not just self-gratification. And in fact, part of the glory of God is that he cares about your gratification. He cares about your pleasure. So he gave you this context to enjoy otherworldly pleasure. But it's about honoring somebody else and serving somebody else and pleasing somebody else. And again, if you're single this morning or if you're struggling with sex in your marriage. There's a ton of resources. Single people, just consider the struggles that your married people are going through. I don't know a single married person who says that their sex life has always been amazing every time. It takes work. When Brittany and I were engaged, one of our mentors told us, they said, the three biggest problems in marriage that could lead towards divorce is communication, sex, and money. And money and sex all revolve around communication. Money and sex usually break down when there's a lack of communication, and that's so true. And so let's communicate with one another. In marriage and singles, understand the struggles that your married friends are going through. And it's good for you to learn this. And then next week, married people, it's good for you to learn what your single friends are going through. One of the other things that the church needs to repent of, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about singleness, is idolizing marriage. How many times have single people in the church instantly been asked if they want to be set up with somebody? And Paul's going to address this next, and let's move into, that's the point really here, six through eight. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And Paul is actually going to go on in the next couple verses later on in the chapter here to talk about the superiority of singleness. He actually sees singleness as a, as a gift that ought to be valued and upheld. And so we're not going to talk about this point this morning because that's coming up. More on this topic next week. Let's move on to this last point here, verses 9 through 16, the purpose and permanence of marriage. So in verse 9, so 6 through 8, Paul is kind of upholding the superiority of singleness. He's going to talk more about that in the coming verses. And then he says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, there's part of this idea that the purpose for marriage is to have an acceptable outlet for sex, according to the Bible. So that is one of the purposes of marriage. And considering the whole scope of the Bible, another purpose for marriage is companionship and procreation. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where, where the first marriage happens between Adam and Eve, there's companionship and procreation. So that's like, we've got to get out of this passage. Actually, not too far, because remember in chapter 6, he said the two shall become one flesh. Paul is taking that teaching from Genesis 1 and 2 companionship and procreation is part of the purpose of marriage. The union of bodies and souls as part of the purpose of marriage. And then the permanence of marriage is what Paul dives into here 
in these last verses of this section. He says, verse 10, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul here is upholding the, the intent, the biblical vision that marriage is to be for life. It's a, it's a covenant. It, it, it's a picture of God's covenant faithfulness to us, the church, the people of God, were called his bride. And throughout scripture, this imagery is used of our unfaithfulness towards God. And yet his faithfulness towards us. And so Paul is picking up on this biblical teaching and he's reminding them that the intent of marriage is to be a covenant, a commitment for life. And so he's, he's giving some categories for divorce and he's saying that if, if you're married in this context in the first century, they became Christians later in life. Remember in Acts chapter 18, Paul came into the city of Corinth and started proclaiming the gospel and many people came to know Jesus. It wasn't like in our culture where we try and hook up youth group kids, right? And then see them through Christian college and then they get married as both believers. It was like the gospel's brand new. And, and you have somebody, you have a husband or a wife who became a Christian. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah and then their spouse doesn't believe. What do you do in that situation? There's arguments in the church about, well, then you should, you should divorce that person. A believer shouldn't be sleeping with an unbeliever because they will then become unholy. And Paul turns this thing around and he says, no, when you are holy, when God declares you holy through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, unholy things as they touch you, they don't make you unholy. The holiness of God goes out and it purifies what you touch. It's like Jesus touching the leper. A leper would be considered unclean and the, the tradition and the rule was that you couldn't touch something unclean because their uncleanliness would pass to you. And Jesus touches the leper and imparts his purity to the leper. Paul is saying in a similar manner, when somebody becomes a Christian, when they place their faith in Jesus Christ, God has sanctified them, right? We've seen this language in the letter already. You are saints, you are holy. As he says in chapter 6, verse 11, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. And so as you go out, if you are married to an unbeliever, there's an increased opportunity for that unbeliever to come to know Jesus Christ because of God's holiness radiating through you in the marriage. So don't leave your spouse because they're an unbeliever, but pray for them, show them what godliness is like. Jesus himself in Matthew 19 taught that adultery is grounds for divorce. And we have many people in our church who have been through a divorce or who have experienced divorce and the heartache and the hurt of divorce. And, and we need to extend a ton of grace here. This is not an unforgivable sin. There are categories for divorce, adultery, 
abandonment right here. Paul just gives us a case for abandonment that if somebody abandons a spouse, somebody becomes a believer and their spouse doesn't want to stay married to them, there's nothing you can do to control that. Abuse would be another one. And so if you have been divorced or somebody close to you has been divorced, please don't see that as a disqualifying sin. It's no different than any other sin. Sometimes the church has not done a good job of communicating the brokenness of the world in this area of sex, sexuality, and marriage. The, the vision for marriage is that it would be lifelong. But Jesus teaches us in Matthew 19, because of the brokenness of human hearts, of mankind, God has given a concession and allowance for divorce. And so it's never God's plan. It's not the ideal. The plan, the picture is to show God's covenant faithfulness to his people. That marriage is a covenant. When you get married, you say, for better or worse, till death do us part. That's a binding covenant saying no matter what we walk through, we're going to walk through it together. That is the picture, that is the hope, that is the intent. But in our broken and fallen world, that's not always lived out. Neither is the biblical sexual ethic. Neither is joyful, holy sex in marriage. Neither is purity and sexual integrity in singleness or in marriage, right? We live in this broken world with hurts all over the place. And sometimes these hurts, they're most deeply found when it comes to issues of sexual practice, human sex and sexuality. And so, church, I want to I close out this morning by just watching a video that, to me, has been so helpful over the years. Especially those of you who grew up around a purity culture, I think you'll connect with this. Whether you were taught kind of through the purity culture lens or whether you taught through the purity culture lens, uh, this is Matt Chandler giving a, giving a sermon. Um, and there's a little clip here where he talks about um, the gospel in our new identity in Jesus Christ. And so I want us to watch this video together and then I will come up and lead into communion. Um, just keep in mind as we watch this video that this is God's heart for us. Regardless of if you've been divorced, if you're on the verge of that, wherever you're at in your pursuit of sexual purity, um, hear God's heart for us through this story that Matt Chandler will share. But it, it didn't take long um, before my passion for the gospel and, and my passion to see lost men and women saved um, s started to rub against or collide with the church. And, and so it wasn't very long, and, and I, I won't, I, I can give you dozens and dozens of stories, but, but really one that kind of broke the camel's back where I decided if I was going to do this, I wasn't going to do it as a churchman because the church more often than not was an enemy of conversion and not its friend. I'll give you an example. Um, this turn in me, this break in me happened that God has been just disciplining me on ever since. Uh, occurred my freshman year of college when um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back 
to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know. And so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And, and so we've talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, they, they, this is the relationship we had just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area, and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician, and, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, what, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose and he smelled it and he showed how pretty it was. And then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it, do it. And I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't, I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up in his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger, and it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose! That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. Every time I watch that, I'm reminded that Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants you. Jesus wants me. He knows our areas of brokenness. And so we're not trying to pile shame and guilt upon sexual sinners. We're trying to show God's glory in calling us to sexual holiness, but knowing that wherever we've been, wherever we will go in Jesus Christ, we are valued and loved, and there's forgiveness. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul writes, And such were some of you sexually immoral, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so this morning, I'm going to have you sit there in silence for a few moments and just thank God for his grace and forgiveness in your life. 
I don't know where you're at on the spectrum of human sex and sexuality and healthy sex in marriage and healthy sexuality outside of marriage. We're all over the place. And what we need to do is come back to the table and be reminded of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and that he is for us and that he wants you. He sees you as valuable and beautiful. He has washed you. He has sanctified you. He has justified you. The communion elements are here to remind us of that. And so the worship team is going to come and just play, play some instrumental for a minute and just spend some time with Jesus. And then take communion when you feel led and ready. And then we'll stand and sing the gospel on our way out. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you see past our brokenness. Lord, some of us victimized in the area of sex and sexuality. Some of us perpetrators in this area. Some of us all of the above. Lord, there's no, none righteous, no, not even one, except for you, Jesus. And you have imputed that to us. So Lord, I pray that we would embrace our new gospel identity. May you nourish each one of us and heal each one of us. For your glory, our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, just take communion when you feel led and ready.